It's 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Rave. So without too much further ado, I'm going to play a couple of clips, sorry, from, um, from that event last night. Here for you today, in, in case you missed it. Um, first up, um, Liz Turner from Renegade Activists is introducing Dr Emma Shortus. First up, I would like to introduce Emma Shortus, who will be our first speaker. So Emma Shortus is a historian and author of Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. She argues that we need to take a fresh and unflinching look at our so-called special relationship with the United States. You may have heard her or seen Emma on ABC radio or television, such as The Drum Today and ABC Podcast Russia, if you're listening and The Signal. And she's also a regular guest on Triple R Radio. Um, so, Emma, welcome to the Raucous Antiochus Caucus and thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So in your book, you've researched the history and relevance of the ANZUS Alliance, that is the Australian-New Zealand-US Alliance. How does the AUKUS agreement change the alliance as it stands now? Um, Well, Liz, I don't think it so much changes the alliance as kind of reinforces and broadens and deepens the historical trajectory of that alliance. So since... The ANZUS, the Australian, New Zealand, United States Security Treaty was signed 70 years ago um, this year. It's been a big year for the Alliance. There has been a kind of continued um, doubling down and, as I said, kind of broadening and deepening and a building of architecture around this security relationship with the United States where you, you see really a kind of historical pattern where, you know, some development or some acquisition of defence material, you know, is considered taboo, it's considered off limits, you know, something like, for example, having American troops on on Australian soil, stationed on American soil is understood as something just kind of politically untouchable until it isn't, until all of a sudden we have an Obama administration pivot to to Asia and we have two and a half thousand American Marines on rotation through Northern Australia. And, And we're told through this narrative that that's quite different to having a permanent presence but what you see is this kind of rhetorical building up and this kind of creeping logic of national security where those previously untouchable unthinkable things become obvious and I think in that way AUKUS very much fits fits into that narrative where you know nuclear powered submarines was considered untouchable something Australia would never have something the United States would never share with Australia until it wasn't. And it, and it follows that pattern of Australians ourselves having absolutely no say or no consultation in that deepening or, or broadening of the relationship. So in that sense, I think AUKUS makes kind of historical sense when we look at the history of, of Australia's relationship with the United States, which is not at all, though, I think, to, to minimise the significance of the acquisition, of course, of nuclear submarines, where you can see that logic playing out again. You know, it's not a huge rhetorical leap from nuclear submarines to a nuclear power industry in Australia, which the Australian Minerals Council is, is already gunning for, to nuclear-powered submarines with, with nuclear weapons. And, and once again, you can I think you can completely see that happening without any consultation. And, Emma... In your research on this special relationship that Australia has with the US, 
I say a special relationship. <laughs> um, it sounds creepy when you do it like that, doesn't it? Um, what did you learn that you think is important for us as activists today? Yeah, sure. That's that's a really good question. And, and it really goes back, I think, to your acknowledgement at, at the beginning of this event. And that's that we can, you know, as scholars, as analysts, as activists, we can never underestimate the foundational racism of Australia's relationship with the United States. The, the common story goes, you know, that, that the ANZUS Treaty and this particular security alliance was born out of war and, and born out of the fact that the British Empire could no longer be relied upon to protect white Australia in the Pacific. And so Australian governments sought out, quite logically, an, another kind of white benevolent protector. And that's because from the foundation of this nation, white Australians, white Australian governments have looked out into our region with fear, you know, so deeply aware of the fact that we live on stolen land and afraid really that that land is going to be stolen off us by the non-white countries in our region. And that's the foundational logic of this alliance. And it's something that, you know, in my experience, speaking about our relationship with the United States, when we hear all this talk of shared values and shared democracy and shared history, that part of our shared history, which for both countries is foundational, is something that isn't confronted. And I think you are, you are so right to highlight the need for that to be front and centre of any confrontation that we have with, with the alliance and any attempt really to, to reform or rebuild Australia's role in the world. And how do you envision Australian foreign policy without the ANZUS Alliance? What form do you think it would take? I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I've had um, a super interesting conversation, in fact, with, with Jordan about this very question and, and what, what Australia might do. And, you know, in, in the kind of... Um, analyst crowd like the the international relations crowd or what we could call like the um foreign policy blob of Australian politics there's this drive to have a kind of dot point of a dot list of dot points of how Australia must um conduct itself in the world or to have kind of immediate solutions to to how Australia can change its role in the world like I I wouldn't presume um to be so arrogant to, to have the answers to Australia's role in the world and how we kind of fix the, the moral bankruptcy of this relationship. What I would say is that it has to involve, you know, it, we can't just ask as, as many people do for a little bit more independence for Australia when it comes to our relationship with the United States, you know, just asking for like a bit more wriggle room when it comes to our sovereignty or, or worrying about what submarines mean for our sovereignty isn't enough. There has to be a confrontation with that foundational question about Australia as a settler colony and how the analysis, the writing, the work, the activism that has already been done and has been done since, again, the foundation of this nation can inform that. It has to be a collective project. It can't be about individuals saying, oh, well, you know, Australia needs to pursue X, Y and Z when it comes to the relationship. And that's messy and difficult, but I think it's it's necessary and it's not naive to suggest that, you know, we can demand better from Australia's role in the world and from our relationship with the United States. And I think if we can't deal with our colonial past as a nation, it's really hard to envisage any other conversations going forward with any other states because our relationship between states is so, at the moment, is so deeply affected by racism and the history of Australian colonialism. 
Yeah, totally. And you see that in, you know, when, when analysts kind of look at how, you know, how our Asian partners are, are viewing this relationship and this development with AUKUS and what do they think about it and how can we convince them that it's okay and it's not threatening. And I think that is, you know, firstly incredibly patronising, but but also kind of, again, skates over the fact that Australian, Australian governments have never dealt with our Asian neighbours in particular in good faith. And that is because of that foundational racism and the fact that ANZUS is born out of a fear of the yellow peril. And, it, and we have to, again, we have to make that front and centre if we ever want to change that. Call up our next speaker, David Brophy. Um, David Brophy is a historian of Ouija nationalism and the author of Ouija Nation and China Panic, Australia's Alternative to Paranoia and Pandering. He's a senior lecturer on modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney. So, um, David, thanks very much for joining us tonight at the Raucous Antiochus Caucus. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. And um, so my first question for you is, um, how does AUKUS fit into the wider Australia-China political picture? Hmm. Well, I, I won't say it's a culmination, but I think AUKUS is a pretty notable landmark in a in an ongoing campaign, really, that's been aimed at pulling Australia out of a hedging position towards China and giving it more of a role in catalyzing a US-led containment policy uh, towards China. There's always been a fair bit of suspicion towards China in defense circles, um, but there's also been quite a high degree of Sinophilia uh, in the Australian elite as well. So I don't think what we're seeing is just a racist response to China. I think it has more to do with the perception that America's position in Asia uh, is slipping, and therefore Australia has to do more to, um, to maintain it. Um, I have a quote from Richard Miles from when he was defence minister, shadow defence minister in 2018, which spells out this logic pretty well uh, in a speech. He said that Australia must, quote, demonstrate to the US that we can help share the burden of strategic thought in the Indo-Pacific so as to, quote, retain the American presence we need in the East Asian time zone. Um, so Malcolm Turnbull and the security agencies got the ball rolling on this in 2017 with a whole string of uh, exaggerated claims uh, of Chinese subversion uh, in Australia. That was directed to the Australian public, of course, but it was also directed internationally to send a message to the world that Australia was the front line uh, of this global pushback uh, against China. <laughs> and that was important because Australia's actions in and of themselves can't ever be determinative in this situation. Um, but by demonstrating Australia's relevance to US interests, it gives Australia a foot in the door to, be, to, to lobby Washington to be more aggressive towards China uh, and to increase uh, its military presence on Australian soil. Um, some of the criticism, I think, um, of this policy turn <coughs> misses this point. You know, people complain that Australia is behaving boorishly, that it's engaging in unnecessary public insults uh, towards China. That's all part of the strategy. Australia really wants to be seen uh, to be willing and able to, to get tough on, on China. So then after a, a couple of years of telling the world that China was a dangerous country, that business as usual with China could not continue, China then eventually responded with its trade actions uh, against Australia. That in turn has been seized on as evidence of China's hostility uh, towards Australia. And around we go um, in what I think is quite a dangerous political uh, dynamic. 
So AUKUS re represents a significant step forward in this strategy to, um, to stoke conflict with China so as to embed uh, an American military presence in Asia and in uh, Australia uh, as well. There's been quite a bit of commentary in the last week about uh, Morrison's ineptitude uh, in landing uh, in landing AUKUS, but I, I think we actually need to take a couple of different points um, from what's come to light. Um, Morrison bullshitting the US and, and screwing the French, what that shows is that Australia has had independent initiative in this situation. This is something that Australia has been angling for, not something imposed on us by the US. Um, and when people complain about Australians and Serbians to the US, they tend to, to miss that point. And secondly, I think what last week shows is that Morrison is willing to incur a political cost to land something like, like AUKUS. And that shows how serious uh, he is. I don't think people like Morrison and Dutton uh, particularly mind the punditry about Australia's trustworthiness on the international stage uh, and so on. Uh, they know that if any of this criticism ever gets to the point of calling AUKUS into, into question, they have a tried and tested strategy to, to combat that, which of course is to turn up the scaremongering uh, towards China. So I'm not here tonight to argue that everyone who's anti-war in Australia has to have exactly the same view of international relations in the Asia Pacific, or that we all have to agree uh, to a position on China and its domestic uh, and foreign policies. But I do want to say, I don't think that we can confront Australian militarism today without at the same time taking on and diffusing uh, this, this talk of China uh, as, the, uh, as the enemy. Uh, some of these claims about China's intentions towards Australia are just fake news, um, frankly, that can be uh, debunked. But some of it does reflect um, some pretty basic and widely held assumptions in Australian foreign policy. For example, Australia's exclusive right to uh, dominate the Pacific. Those kinds of assumptions are often shared by dovish voices uh, in the foreign policy debate as well. So even if AUKUS was to fall apart, um, in the absence of a more transformative vision of how we conduct international relations, which you know, is what people like us have to provide, I think we can anticipate that this rivalry with China will continue uh, to motivate calls for things like um, increased military spending uh, in the years to come. And so I guess what you're talking about, David, is um, this the, the connection between the timing of the AUKUS announcement and the upsurge of xenophobia, which is the fear or dislike of China, which encompasses everything from political influence to Huawei to covid Sure, right. Well, when we talk about the domestic ramifications uh, of all this, I think there's, there's, there are two related dimensions that we need to be, um, to be aware of. And, and I'll, I'll begin actually with civil liberties. So this talk of Chinese subversion, foreign interference, um, has become the chief motivation these days for the ongoing expansion of uh, security laws uh, in Australia. Now, if you've been following this, some of the implementation of this legislation has been pretty farcical. Um, but the terms of these laws are defined extremely broadly. They contain severe jail sentences for things that, in my view, should not be uh, criminalised uh, at all. Now, I see these laws primarily aimed at intimidating and silencing constituencies in Australia that are supportive of engagement with China. But we need to be aware that these contain provisions that could easily be wielded against um, anti-war activists uh, as well. 
uh, particularly, for example, you know, collaboration with foreign organizations, um, participating in an internationally coordinated uh, anti-war campaign, for example, particularly if there was direct action involved, uh, could be something that could be pinned as, as foreign interference. Um, ASIO is continuing to lobby for more laws uh, and to extend the provisions of counterterrorism legislation, things like detention and interrogation powers to cases of um, foreign interference. So this is something we should all be uh, worried about. The biggest impact, of course, has been felt by Chinese Australians uh, who've been deemed a, subject, a suspect community, a one that um, requires heightened surveillance, just as Muslims were in the context of the war on terror. Uh, you had the same notion that um, uh, they lack some mythical set of uh, Australian values. Um, there is pressure to conform to uh, a stereotype of the good, loyal uh, Chinese Australian. And of course, there have been calls to reduce immigration from the, uh, the PRC, um, including in a recent book by, uh, by Peter Harcher, um, one that astonishingly Penny Wong from the Labour Party uh, praised at, at its launch, uh, a book that openly calls for reducing uh, immigration from China. Um, the statistics on this are quite shocking. There was a, a study conducted in 2020 by the Scanlon Foundation that found that almost half of Australians, 47%, um, hold negative views towards Chinese Australians. Uh, and then there was a Lowy poll released in March, which found that in the preceding 12 months, 31% of Chinese Australians had suffered racial abuse and 18%, um, almost one in five, had been physically threatened or attacked on the basis of their ethnicity. Now, you'll often hear people, even very hawkish people, um, expressing regret uh, for all this and, you know, insisting that they're, they're not anti-Chinese, they're just um, anti-CCP. Well, fine. Um, it's not racist to criticise the Chinese government. I do that all the time. It's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. But if you're advancing a narrative that China is hell-bent on taking away our freedoms or our democracy, and that Chinese Australians are helping them to do that, if you believe that every policy sinew now has to be strained towards this confrontation with Beijing, well, I'm sorry, but anti-Chinese racism is what you're going to get. Um, and progressives in particular who imagine that there's, there's some kind of anti-racist way to support the US in its rivalry with China really need to be disabused of that notion uh, quickly. Now, you know, to, to, to conclude, I suppose this, this upsurge of racism, I think, ref reflects a deeper point here, um, which is that this campaign is not at all driven by humanitarian motivations. Uh, militarism and nationalism on our side are only going to produce uh, a mirror response in China. That's not going to help the Uyghurs or other victims of CCP repression. Uh, pointing bigger and bigger guns at China is not the way to solve disputes uh, in the South China Sea. It's not something that's in the interests of uh, the people of uh, Taiwan. And of course, this is always going to be the, the line of attack from the right, that we're soft on the CCP, that we're pro-China, uh, blah, blah, blah. So we need to be very confident in saying that, that opposition to AUKUS, uh, opposition to Australian racism, a critique of Australia's imperialistic attitude towards the Pacific, that's the only position from which to mount any kind of ethically credible uh, and consistent criticism of the racism and bullying diplomacy uh, that we see from China. And I think that um, if we're talking about activism here tonight as well and looking at what types of actions we might take, it's really important for us to keep in mind 
the impacts that this is having and will continue to have on Chinese Australians and to, to centre some of our activism around that as well. Thank you so much, David, for your words tonight and please feel free to stay on the line and contribute to the discussion. Um, I'd now like to introduce Jacob Grech, who is part of Renegade Activists, who's the group putting this on this evening and who's been organising the Raucous Antiochus Caucus. Jacob has been a, a long-term anti-militarism campaigner He's also a weapons researcher with a wealth of knowledge about weapons and weapons manufacturing military industrial complex. So tonight, Jacob is going to be talking about um, the impacts of AUKUS on climate change and the kind of long tentacles of the reach of AUKUS into our daily lives. Um, so a question for you, Jacob. Uh, most of the narrative around AUKUS has been focused on nukes and submarines. But right now, having just concluded top COP26, what are the implications of AUKUS for the climate? Wow, that's, yeah, <clears throat> it's, a big, it's a big question. And um, AUKUS is a big issue, Liz and everyone. Um, look, a lot of the discussion about AUKUS so far, you're right, has been about submarines. Do we need nuke subs? And... Um, you know, this week, and it hasn't really brought it out, so it's great to have these raucous caucuses to discuss some of the other issues and great to hear Emma and Dave um, give some depth to the question of our relationship with the US and China, respectfully, And because um, part of the problem is that in the larger discussion, there seems to have been a lack of nuance, I guess you'd say, um, from both sides, those pro and anti-AUKUS. Um, this week, Morrison was in um, Glasgow, of course, for the COP26 and Rome for the G20, and the discussion seemed to have brought out just a smidgen about, you know, with the Australian media honing in on the question of did Scott Morrison lie to Emmanuel Macron, and um, as if it matters, of course he did. The um, nature of capitalism and um, politicians and business is to deceive each other. They lie to each other and they lie to us all, all the time. But... So I guess in the short time I've got, I'm going to try to broaden the discussion out and I won't be able to have a, a lot of time. So I'm just going through some points here. Um, we don't know a lot about AUKUS, so we need to... I'm looking at it in terms of the um, the timeline. AUKUS was announced... Talks ended in Washington. And so the Yosemite are the annual talks between the... Australian Foreign and Defence Ministers and the Secretary of Defence in the US that um, that replaced the ANZUS talks after um, New Zealand was, well, not thrown out of ANZUS, suspended from ANZUS over its um, stance on nuclear ship visits. And that's an important point to start with because while AUKUS isn't a treaty yet, ANZUS was, some would say, our most important treaty in defence realm and the US can unilaterally end the treaty if a people of a country elect a government that disagrees with its stance on any number of issues. It, um, not against the treaty as such but in New Zealand's case against nukes so it's, um, it's important to bear that in mind. Um, the big ticket item was, of course, nuclear power submarines, and we're going to um, hear something from um, our West Australian um, friends in in a moment about the visit of the um, HMS Astute to Fremantle. It's there at the moment. Um, and I guess when I'm talking about the totality of AUKUS, we need to accept that 
AUKUS isn't just about military power. Yet another, I guess, the days are gone where we can separate military power and be hoodwinked by the bullshit that it isn't central to a capitalist economy. You know, right-wing commentator Thomas Friedman at the end of the last century put it nicely when he said, um, the hidden hand of the market will never work without a hidden fist. McDonald's cannot flourish without McDonnell Douglas. And that is what the AUKUS pact is about. It's about the military exerting even more influence with the, th- with the tripartite, with the three partners, the UK, US and us, on the global hegemony. So it's, you know, it's about basically maintaining, like all militarism, maintaining and increasing the disparity between the 0.1% of the world and the rest of us. Okay, so let's just get that clear. And while I said I wasn't going to go on about subs, I want to raise one issue that the subs um, impact on. Um, strangely, and I'm trying to look for issues here that aren't already in the in the common dialogue, and that's the issue of education. You know, the current neoliberal framework on education funding has seen a shift of the cost from education from the government to private industry. Now, that was started under Hawke's government with um, Beasley as Minister for Microeconomic Reform, and it's remained through all the different governments of all the different flavours. That means universities and increasingly high schools and even primary schools are seeking corporate funding. On the big scale, you've got things like Lockheed Martin building its biggest non-US research facility um, in Melbourne University, right down to the smaller scale where you've got um, a mob called Reengineering Australia with a subs in school program. And already the subs in school program within days of the AUKUS announcement put out its own press release saying that they've they've started an AUKUS-like pact or an AUKUS-like agreement with schools in the UK and the US to start studying submarines under the New Deal. So already we've got Reengineering Australia, which is funded by arms companies, in our primary schools and high schools directing children under the rubric of assisting with STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics programs, towards working on nuclear submarines. This is happening now. And at the other end of it, of course, you've got the ANU capitalising on the announcement by advertising around the world for students to come to Canberra to help develop Australia's nuclear policy. And um, ANU's press release said that, I'll quote, this deal changes everything when it comes to nuclear science in Australia. So if it's true that these submarines are not changing the need for a nuclear industry in Australia, someone ought to tell the ANU that. Yeah, well, that's all we have time for on a Friday rave this week. Um, I went on at the caucus last night to talk about climate change being a big thing. Um, But I've just got to say to you, anybody listening tonight, um, right now, starting right now on um, Collins Street, I think 257 Collins Street, the Liberal Party headquarters, is a climate change action. 5.30, it starts 257 Collins Street, the Liberal Party of Australia headquarters. I'm going to make my way down there right now. Hopefully, see you there. Talk to you next week.